You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. Would anybody want to testify today and just say, thank you, Jesus? Anybody? Yeah. Man. Maybe sometimes maybe we don't take enough time to just say say that. That right there. That could be the sermon today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I don't even know all the things that I'm thanking Jesus for. Because honestly, I don't know all the things that he's saved me from. You ever thought about that? You know, I've got kids. They eat well. They've got premium Wi-Fi for free. You know? They don't know. They do not know, nor will they ever. You know what it does to my heart when they say to me, hey, dad, thank you. Thank you. You know? Maybe sometimes we just need to say, thank you, Jesus. You know? Oh, my soul has been ministered to today. And I was this one that was supposed to be doing the ministering. Oh. Awesome. Have you ever doubted your faith? Be honest with me. Have you ever doubted your faith? You ever questioned the veracity of Christianity altogether? You ever wondered about the actual, the existence of God? You ever wondered whether or not this was all just a giant conspiracy? (laughs) You ever wondered? If you have, you're in good company. I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but the opening story is about two people that wandered, wandered and wandered too close to a tree that God's word had said to them not to eat from. And what did the serpent do? But the serpent encouraged them to doubt the very word of God, right? You don't go much further in this story. You find an elderly couple, octogenarians, older than that. That's 80 year olds, right? Even older than that. God comes in and says, hey, you're gonna have a baby. Abraham and Sarah, believe you me, there was great doubt in that moment, you know? Sarah's like, you know, I'm I'm prehistoric, but I have an idea how this works. (laughs) You know, there was some great doubt there. Moses at the burning bush. You know, he says, God, I don't know what you're thinking. I may not be the right guy for this one, you know. I'm not gonna keep going on throughout the the Bible story naming all the people with doubt because we'd be here all day and I'm just on my introduction right now, you know. But I'm telling you, if you doubt, you're in good company today. And so here we are. The week after we've just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, we're opening up a sermon about doubt. The reason is doubt was in high supply after Jesus was allegedly raised from the dead. Following his passion and resurrection, Jesus' disciples were very afraid and they had many doubts. And it makes sense. It makes sense why they were afraid and it makes sense why they had doubts. And quite honestly, you and I would have been very afraid and we probably would have had a lot of doubts as well, okay? Uh, Their leader had just been publicly executed 
and brutally executed for claiming to be God. And it's definitely not unreasonable to think, you know, for them to have think that by virtue of association, they might be indicted as well, you know? And so they, they're, they're afraid. Uh, the beginning of Acts teaches us that Jesus came after his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And what was he doing over that period of 40 days? Well, he was addressing their fear and he was addressing their doubt. And my prayer today is that Jesus would address our fear and our doubt in this room. Because I believe that it's possibly here. Anybody have any fear or any doubt today that he's addressed? If you have your Bible, I want you to go with me to John chapter 20. Go to John chapter 20. And we're going to be picking up the story right after the resurrection today in John's gospel. John has just told the story about Mary going to the tomb and confusing Jesus as the gardener. And then she goes to hold on to him and he says, don't hold on to me. I'm not yet ascended to my father, but go tell everybody, you know, that I've risen from the dead. And she says, okay, you know, I'll do that. And she goes and tells them and they don't believe her. <laughs> you know, they're like, I don't know. I don't know if we really believe you. So this is where we pick up this story. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. When it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, uh, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. So this is Easter night, okay? The disciples, like I said, they're gathered, they're afraid. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Not even a locked door can stop the resurrected Christ. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the, then the disciples rejoiced, when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. They need peace because they're scared out of their minds. <laughs> Jesus is gonna say peace be with you three times in this passage. As the Father has sent me, now I send you. Now that's actually a very scary phrase because the disciples just saw what happened to Jesus who was sent from the Father. You know, he says, as I was sent, now I'm sending you, you know? I mean, that's a big, that's a big, I'm not preaching on that phrase necessarily today, but that is a massive statement of Jesus. As the Father sent me, now I'm sending you, okay? With Jesus, with the revelation of Jesus, there's usually some measure of commission, some measure of sending, you know? Jesus doesn't just give you revelation to benefit you, you know? He wants to send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are thinking, I thought that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Well, John recalls this moment in the upper room where a few of the disciples are together, the first time they're seeing the resurrected Lord. And what he does is he imparts to this small group of people, the Holy Spirit. Now we know we're gonna find out here soon, not everybody was there. This is just a small group of people. So there are different ways that, you know, different scholars and um, biblical critics have understood this telling, you know, of, of the spirit coming. But, it's, but the fact of the matter is this, this group right here, not all of Jesus' disciples are gathered together in the power and the force in the same way that they were in Pentecost that Luke's story tells us about, okay? 
Then Jesus says this to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and I put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were together in the house. So that's today, a week later, a week after Easter, okay? They're in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus does it again. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, all right, Tommy boy. I'm kidding, he didn't actually say that. That was maybe sacrilegious, I'm sorry. He said, all right, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. We're gonna come back to that. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. The revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And that was written for you and me. You know, people pick on Thomas because we call him doubting Thomas because it took him seeing physically Jesus to believe. The other disciples, it took them seeing as well. You know, they had already gotten to see him. He's like, man, you can tell me all you want about your party you had until I, had, until I experience a party. You know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna know what you're talking about, right? I mean, he's, he's reasonable. We call him Doubting Thomas. Maybe we should call him Reasonable Thomas, you know? Rebrand Thomas after 2,000 years here. So, but Jesus says, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and through believing, you may have life in his name. Wouldn't it be awesome to have life in his name today? There's a lot in this passage. I'm just gonna talk about two elements of it. Doubt and belief. Two things today, doubt and belief. I wanna start with doubt. Doubt is a very hotly debated topic among Christian theologians. Did you know this? There's a famous theologian of the 19th century, John Henry Newman, who famously converted from Anglicanism to Catholicism. And he understood doubt to be completely incompatible with faith. So he taught, he taught that if, if you have doubt, you cannot have faith. And many people that understand doubt and faith to be opposites kind of on a spectrum or polarities of one another, uh, they believe that doubt is actually a sin. And so there have been people that, that have taught in this church that it, to doubt is to sin. That's not a biblical idea, that's a theological idea. Trust me, there are a lot of non-biblical theological ideas out there, okay? And maybe you've heard this growing up, that to doubt is, is, um, is to sin. But that's, that's one idea of what doubt is in a theological sense. There was a famous theologian in the 20th century named Paul Tillich, and he said about doubt that anybody who has faith has had to doubt. Anybody that has real faith has had to doubt, has had to question. Tillich understood doubt to be 
kind of the realist's assessment of the risk of faith. So, you know, I, if, I, if I'm really going to give my life to a belief, if I'm really gonna give my life to faith, I have to ask the questions, well, what if this isn't true? You know, kind of asking the what ifs. But Tillich doesn't say that doubt is incompatible with faith. He says it's a very intrinsic part of a kind of an intellectual understanding of faith. Um, I'm not gonna spend all my time talking about theologians today, but I just want to say to you, you know, I don't know what you've heard about doubt in the church, but there's room for you. There's a place for you. Maybe you're afraid because you have doubts today. Uh, I wanna go back to, to Jesus's words in verse 27 addressing doubt. Here's what Jesus says to Thomas. Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. This verse has inspired one of my favorite paintings of all time. I may have shown it to you before. I show it to all of my uh, introduction students at the university. Uh, it's, it's the Renaissance painting, the Caravaggio, the incredulity of St. Thomas. We have, a, we have a picture, we have it right here. I want you to look at this, this photo for a moment. The incredulity of St. Thomas. In this photo, I love the way Caravaggio depicts the spirit of Jesus here, gently taking the hand of Thomas and guiding it into his side. I, I love that, I love that image. I also love the friends, <laughs> the other disciples. Well, if he's gonna look, you know, maybe, maybe we could check out what's going on there too, you know? I want to encourage you today that if you walked in the door with doubts, Jesus, as with Thomas in this painting, he invites you in further. He wants to take your hand. And just put it in his side. Jesus isn't angry at Thomas for doubting. No, he just embraces him. You know, there are moments in a life of faith that we get to see, that we get to touch, that we get to feel. Moments where our faith actually becomes sight. And these are amazing moments. This is one of those moments for Thomas that Caravaggio depicts. A moment that solidifies one's faith forever. Yet there are also dark moments of a life of faith, moments that require us to hold on to hope, to hold on to the promise of Jesus, the unseen one. Jesus promised his disciples, after all, I will never leave you nor will I forsake you. But let's be honest, sometimes it feels like he's not as close as we would like him to be. As Protestant Christians, particularly in the West, we emphasize the importance of belief in our faith. We understand belief to be a mental acceptance of a proposition. We think that belief is all about what happens in my mind. And if a person accepts a proposition of belief, we call that person a believer, which is you know, a popular name we use for Christians. I'm a, I'm a believer. Or, or uh, was it Shrek? He was also a believer, right? <laughs> then I saw her face. Uh, da, da. Now I'm a believer. That was a, that was a Shrek joke. If you've not seen it, you're, you're, you're missing it. Yet in, in, 
so this is, this is kind of our post-enlightenment understanding of belief. But in a pre-modern, pre-Reformation time, belief was not intellectually understood as it is in our post-Descartian, if I can use that word, time. Do you, do you remember the, the, the French philosopher, you may have heard of him in Western civilization, Rene Descartes, who made that Latin phrase so famous, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Descartes and others convinced us that belief is primarily about mental assent and agreement. But if we were to read this passage in, in Greek, in the original language that the Bible was given to us in, the, the Greek language has more nuance than that. You see, in our, in our English language, we have two words, faith and belief, that means different things. Like I, I have a belief in the faith of Christianity, right? There are two nouns that sort of mean a different thing. Well, in Greek, the word pistos is, is a word that has both faith and belief in it. We, we get, we get both, both words out of, out of that one word. And so this phrase in Greek that ends verse 27, kai me genu apistos hava pistos, could also be translated not just as don't um, become not an unbeliever, but be a believer. It could be translated as and be not unfaithful, but be faithful. You see, Jesus didn't just want Thomas to believe in his head that he was alive. Jesus wanted Thomas to have a belief that would change his life, like actually the way that he was living. The belief that Jesus called Thomas to was not just a belief of the mind, but a belief of the heart that would alter his life forever. And church tradition maintains that, maintains that it did. Uh, we understand that Thomas actually gave his life to the work of the gospel, traveling as far as India, where we believe he was martyred for the sake of the gospel. It's amazing. Jesus didn't just want him to believe in his head, but to believe in his heart. Now, the way that Jesus embraces Thomas, doubting Thomas, I think is a great model for the way that we in the church ought to embrace people that have doubt. Too often, our response to people that have doubt is fear. Oh no, you know, they're, they're not believing. Or, or defensiveness, maybe even argumentation. Oftentimes we feel the need to convince people that they need to believe. Jesus's response to Thomas's doubt is to take his hand and put it in his side. When Thomas doubts, Jesus doesn't say to him, look, man, you gotta believe. No, he just, he just takes his hand. Now, there's a, there's a really famous book in Christianity called Evidence That Demands a Verdict that was written by the McDowells, Josh and Sean McDowell. That is a great book. And I don't, in preaching on the doubt of Thomas, want to in any way diminish the role of apologetics in the church because there really are some just great historical reasons to, to believe in the veracity and the validity of Jesus's claims and in Christianity. And if you're having doubts today just about the Bible and where it came from and the resurrection, these types of things, I would highly recommend you getting that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh and Sean McDowell. 
I feel somewhat personally connected to them even. Uh, my grandmother went to the former Soviet Union as a missionary with Josh McDowell uh, in the 90s. And when I was on staff at Olivet, we, we hosted Sean. And, the, and these guys are, they're, they're the real deal. They love the Lord. They have a great kind of defense of the faith. But, but we need to understand that when Thomas doubts, Jesus does not hand him a book and say, go read this, dude. You're stupid. You know? Or like, man, if your brain, you know, if you only had a better brain, you know, then, then, you know, you would believe. No, no, no. He takes his hand and he, and he puts it in his side. And the reason that I bring this up is, is I don't think that there are intellectual, I don't think that there is one intellectual argument that is the most convincing evidence of Jesus's resurrection in the world today. I don't think that arguments are the way that you convince people of the, of the reality of the resurrection. Do you know what the most tangible evidence of the, of the resurrection is in the 21st century? Do you know what it is? It's you. And it's me. We are the physical evidence in the world of the resurrection. You know, this, this, comes from, this passage comes from the beginning of the book of John. But if you read the rest of the New Testament, Paul says things like, did you know that you are the body of Christ? You are Christ's workmanship. You are Christ's building. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. This is right, why right after he tells Thomas, don't doubt, but believe, or don't be unfaithful, be faithful. He breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit because the spirit is the evidence of the resurrection in us today. You know, God takes people who are crabby and he gives them joy. God takes people who are addicted to drugs and he makes them clean. God takes marriages that are broken and he heals them. That is the evidence of the resurrection in the world today. And I'm telling you, your millennial that you're worried about, your gen, who do we have next? Gen Z, Gen Y, Gen H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P. <laughs> Whoever your gen is, handing them a book is not the evidence of the resurrection. We wish it were because that would be easy It'd be a lot easier than taking someone's hand and saying, hey, I'm gonna lay down my agenda and I'm gonna walk with you and demonstrate to you the resurrection. That's discipleship. That's what Jesus does, you know? I think, I think that Jesus's model of how he deals with Thomas's doubt, it ought to be instructive to us. That's how, this is how we ought to address doubt in the world and in the church. You, you are the living witness of the resurrection. It's you, you know, it's amazing. It's power. This passage ends by saying, these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that my, by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus calls Thomas and Jesus calls you and me out of doubt into a life of radical belief, which translates into obedience. Do not doubt, but believe. Be not unfaithful, but be faithful. I said, I talk about doubt and belief. I've talked a little bit about belief already, but more directly, I want to address belief. Belief is really important. 
I mean, it's really, really important. What you believe shapes what you become. What you believe in many ways determines what is possible in your life. Did you know this? Somebody in here thinks that their marriage is unredeemable. They're convinced of it. You're either divorced or headed that way and you think that God can't fix it. And you know what? You're right. And you know why you're right? You're right because you've determined that you're right. Because you don't believe that God can't fix it. People ask me all the time if I believe in determinism. I say, absolutely. I see determinism in the world all the time. I see people that determine that God can't do particular things and they don't let him work. That's determinism, you know? All these people, you know, uh, walking around kind of, you know, moping about, uh, you know, um, situations that are out of their control, kind of wondering what God's role is and is not in these things. And I, I gotta tell you, if you wanna spend a lifetime of wondering and questioning, that's, that's where to start, is asking the kind of the deep questions of what all, what all was our responsibility? What all was God's? You know, I have many questions like that that I'm gonna ask God on the other side if I make it. You know, in this particular moment, what, what was you and what was me? You know, th these are the moments, kind of the intersection of faith in my personal opinion. But how terrible would it be at the end for God to say to us, you know what, you didn't believe. You didn't believe that I could. And so it wasn't possible. This is why Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. Nothing will be impossible for you. That's what Jesus is talking about. He just needs a little bit of belief. There's somebody sitting in here who's addicted to pornography and you believe that that's just gonna be kind of a part of your bag for the rest of your life. Somebody in here is trying to kick a drug habit and you believe that, you know what? I don't know that God can actually do anything to change it. Somebody in here is perpetually given to fits of rage. The most devastating phrase that I hear Christians say is, that's just who I am. That's who you are because that's all you're allowing God to do in you. That's the threshold, you know? What if you believed in the power of the resurrection? What if you and I actually believed in the power of the resurrection? That the power of God that raised Jesus' physical body from the dead might actually be able to change and transform our lives right now. Think of the possibilities. But, you know, but Jesus, he says, don't, don't doubt, believe. I just need you to believe. You know, sometimes it's easier not to believe because you can control a situation if you don't believe in other possibilities. I think about Thomas. Okay, so, two, so this is, uh, what is it? Nine days after the resurrection, right? So two days after Jesus appears to everybody in the, in the, uh, the room that they were, they were in, Thomas isn't there. A week later, Jesus shows up. So nine days Nine days after Jesus was crucified. You know what Thomas had probably done in nine days? You know what I would have done in nine days? I would have sent my resume to different people. I would have started planning my life. 
You know, I probably would have booked some flights and international travel is expensive. You know what I'm saying? So you got to put a down payment. Then all of a sudden Jesus shows up and Thomas is like, oh, dang. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, be not unfaithful, but be faithful, right? It was, although it was, although it was hard, although it was, uh, uh, would have been maybe full of grief. Thomas had already figured out his life without Jesus. He'd spent nine days figuring out what it was going to be like. He had accepted his fate. He knew what was possible for the future. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. He said, hold on a second. Hold on just a second there, Tommy boy. This is possible. And imagine what's possible within you. You guys, I, I, don't know, I don't know where this hits you today. I don't know where this hits you as individuals, but I think that there's somebody in here that just needs to believe. You know, as, as Christians, culturally, it's very easy to sit on the fence of agnosticism. Do you know what agnosticism is? An agnostic is, is somewhere between atheism and faith. You know, I kind of, I see God, you know, I believe, yeah, you know, there's intelligent design or something like this, but I don't have a faith. Everybody in college is an agnostic right now. I mean, it's hilarious. I have all these kids. I'm like, what's your faith? They're like, oh, I'm undecided. I don't know. I don't know. Agnosticism is the coolest thing in America right now. And honestly, I mean, some of you are like, what are we talking about? I'm an agnostic, right? That's what I'm saying to you. But the thing is, Jesus calls Thomas from the fence of agnosticism into a radical life of obedience. And you know, the fact of the matter is, we all know how to say the right things to the right people at the right time. Some of you say out loud, yeah, I believe, but you're living a life of practical agnosticism. Not giving it all to Jesus, not embracing fully belief in what the resurrected Lord could actually do in your life. What could happen? What could happen to us if, if we would just actually believe? My prayer in this week after resurrection is that we would become a people that are not people of unbelief or unfaithfulness, but that we would embrace a radical life of belief, of faithfulness to God. And let's just be clear, it's not all rainbows and roses if you, if you embrace a life of faith. It wasn't for Thomas, but do you know what it is? It's a life of radical meaning. It's amazing. You know, I said the thing about, you know, the Gen, Gen Y, X, you know, all these, you know, young generations. There are, there are theologians that would say that being a Christian in the 21st century is more like being a Christian in the first century than it was in the 20th century. And the reason is some of you remember an, a, a, an age or you remember a society in which it would be kind of inconceivable for people not to know who Jesus was or not to believe in God at all. Do you remember that world? Just where we just kind of like talked about God casually, we attributed things to God, you know? That's not the, if, in case you haven't noticed, in case you are unaware, that is no longer the world that we live in. I'm constantly amazed when I talk to elementary school kids that have no idea who Jesus is. In many ways, 
being a Christian in the 21st century is more like being a Christian, at least in North America, it's more like being a Christian in the first century in the secular age than it was in the 20th century. But guess what? That means we've got great opportunity. Do you know how many people don't know Jesus? Do you know how many people are faithless? Do you know how many people don't know the peace, the hope, the love, the restoration that's possible because of the spirit of Jesus? So many, you know? And us being people of the resurrection means that we are people of radical faithfulness to God, of radical obedience, of radically walking into the things that he's calling us into. I want you to stand with me today. Maybe there's somebody here that would say, you know what, I today needs to be the day that I get off the fence of practical agnosticism. I wanna invite you to come and pray, to consecrate your life, to rededicate your life, to say, you know what? I'm gonna believe. I'm gonna walk into what Jesus has for me. I also wanna invite you, we're doing something really cool in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the Church of the Nazarene globally has uh, invited churches all across America to join what they're calling a half million mobilization. A prayer, a prayer journey. Uh, what's funny is the denomination published a bunch of these booklets and within a couple of days, they were completely sold out. They didn't have belief that people were actually gonna get into this. You know what I'm saying? It's a lack of belief, you know? But well, the thing is we have the, uh, we have the devotional available. It's going to begin next week. Uh, we have it, if you scan this QR code here on the screen or, on, or in your bulletin, it's there. We're gonna have printed copies that we generated with a local printer here available next week, about 250. But if you go to this link on our website, you'll be able to follow along with us starting next week as we just venture into really kind of earnestly seeking the heart of God, trying to be more faithful in this age. We're gonna be emphasizing prayer in the, in the days that are ahead leading us to Pentecost. I also wanna give you one more invitation. Uh, several of us a couple of weeks ago uh, had gathered here in the sanctuary at 10.15, just between 10.15 and 10.30 to just pray, to just intercede, to intervene, to ask that we could see God's glory. And we're, we're, just, gonna begin, we're just gonna begin doing that uh, between services here in the sanctuary. So I wanna encourage you maybe next week, if you wanna come early at 10.15, uh, you need to bring your children with you. We're not gonna be able to check them in, which your children should be here anyway. They need to see us pray. We're gonna just invite people between 10.15 and 10.30 to just come and intercede, to fill the sanctuary with prayer of anticipation, that we would see God's glory, that God would show us what it means to live radically into a life of faith and obedience in our age, all right? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you today for your gift of life to us. Oh, Jesus. We pray the prayer of St. Patrick, Christ before me, Christ behind me, under me and above me, to my left and to my right. Lord, would you go before us this week? May we walk in your power Would you give us radical faith? Help our unbelief, we pray. And we pray all these things in the powerful, powerful name of the one who died but rose again and sits at the Father and intercedes for us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. May God bless you this week.
Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.